0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabinus. Welcome. It's great to be together this morning. I want to just welcome you personally and say I'm so glad that you are here uh, worshiping with us. And If we've not met before, my name is Craig. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my responsibility at this time uh, in our service to bring God's Word to us. And we are studying through the book of Ephesians and looking at how grace changes everything. The grace of God changes everything in our lives. And so we have uh, looked at uh, chapters 1 and 2. We've completed them. We'll look at half of chapter Thirteen today. We're going to look at chapter uh, verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm calling this message, A Church for God's Mission. A Church for God's Mission. Uh, we began by just seeing the purpose of God is ultimately what God is doing, and His grand purpose is to redeem a people for Himself. Um, to, he, 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 he chooses us in eternity past. Chapter 1 says he saves us through his son, Jesus Christ, coming and shedding his blood, dying in our place. Uh, and then he uh, seals us by the Holy Spirit and calls us to himself. Um, he, he saves us even though we are dead, spiritually dead. He brings us to life in Christ. And he not only reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to his people, he makes us one with his people, and that's what we've been reading about is God's people and the, and the glory of being a part of God's people, Jew and Gentile, all dividing walls, everything that would divide us has been broken down, and we are one in Christ. So today, we're going to read uh, uh, verses 1 through 13. Now, I'm going to start by just reading verses 1 through 6, talk about that, and then we'll go to uh, verses 7 through 13. So verses 1 through 6, chapter 3, Ephesians. uh, This is God's holy, authoritative word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight Into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, this first section, it's, it's interesting. He's talking about mystery. Did you see that word? He used the word mystery several times in just that one section. And uh, it's important for us to consider what, what is a mystery. Now, we use the word mystery in a couple of different ways that are different uh, than what Paul is talking about here. For us, a mystery is something unknown. We say, well, that's a mystery. We took, took all my socks and put them in the washer then removed all my socks and put them in the dryer, and then brought my socks to my bedroom, and there is a missing sock. And where did that sock go? Ah, that is a mystery, we would say. What does it mean? It's unknown. I don't know where the sock is. It's a mystery. Or another way that we use the word mystery is that something is puzzling, but it can be figured out by following the clues. And so this kind of mystery is like a mystery novel or a mystery movie or a mystery TV show where the lead character pieces together all the clues and solves the mystery. And so maybe Paul's talking about that, like he's the lead detective in figuring out this mystery that he refers to. We love that kind of stuff. And perhaps you have your favorite uh, mystery detective, Sherlock Holmes, maybe you're old school, Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew or maybe you're like 70s shaggy and scooby in the mystery machine or the undisputed goat columbo there is no one like him the undisputed detective of all detectives but the mystery that he's talking about here is not something that is deducible uh, by doing investigative work paul is not saying i'm like one of those detectives, and I figured out the mystery. Paul's also not saying that this mystery of the gospel, it's like that sock. Good luck figuring it out. The Greek word for mystery here is neither of those. It means actually something that is revealed. The mystery is something that is in fact known, but it's only known by those to whom the mystery is revealed. So the mystery is something known, But it's something that's known only to those to whom it is revealed. So the mystery here is the secret plan of God's redemption that Paul is saying has now been revealed. So there's two sections here. The first section is about God's secret plan disclosed. And it's disclosed to a small number of people. The second section, verses 7 through 13, is about God's secret plan of redemption exposed, meaning that it's broadly communicated. But first, it is disclosed to a small group of people. Look at verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. So Paul is saying, This mystery is known, but it was revealed to me by God. And it's also been hidden, he says, verse 5. The the people of previous generations did not know this mystery, but it's now revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, verse 5. So there's this small group of people that are in on the mystery because God's revealed it to them. It's open, the mystery is open to Paul, It's open to the apostles, and it's open to the prophets, he says, initially. And then in verse 6, we get the big reveal. He tells us what the mystery is. What is the mystery, Paul? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says, the big news is that Gentiles are joined to Jews. Gentiles are non-Jews. Gentiles are joined with the Jews as God's people in Christ. How is this a mystery? How is this a mystery that's now been revealed? Because don't we read about this in the Old Testament? For instance, in, uh, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation, among other things, I'm going to make a nation out of you. It'll be the nation of Israel. And he says in Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a people, and through you, all the nations, the Gentiles, will be blessed. Now, ultimately, that'll come through the Messiah. But the, all the world will be blessed through your Uh, through your family, your people, your nation, Israel. So the plan of God, the purpose of God all along, not hidden but open to Abraham and to all of Israel was that one day the Gentiles would be included with God's people. But here's the deal. Prior to Christ, the assumption among the Jews was that to become part of the people of God, one must first become a Jew. That's what a lot of the bickering is about in the New Testament. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised? What needs to happen? Do they need to become a Jew to become a Christian? And Paul is saying the mystery is that everything is changed. And now in Christ, everyone is welcome as an equal to be part of God's people. It's not just the Jew. You don't have to become a Jew but you can trust Christ and you are incorporated into the people of God just as a Jew must trust Christ, a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul is imprisoned for this message. This message is so radical. I tried to say this last week, that the division between Jew and Gentile is so radical, the the separation, the disdain. We we don't really have categories for, for this. You'd almost have to say something like, for us to relate... Historically, you'd almost have to say something like a relationship between blacks and whites during slavery, even during Jim Crow, where there's such a radical in the South, a radical separation. It it almost goes to something like that to be able to understand how these people were separated and now unified in Jesus. But this is why Paul's in prison, because Paul says, hey, here's the mystery of God. Gentiles are welcome uh, just as Jews are. And he's not in prison. He's writing this from prison. He said in verse 1, I, the prisoner of Christ. He's not in prison because he said Jesus was resurrected. He's in prison, uh, Acts 21 says, because he's at the temple in Acts 21, and the Jews start freaking out. They say, this is the guy that speaks against our law, against our people, against God's temple, and this guy brought an Ephesian, instantly, uh, interestingly. He brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, uh, who's from Ephesus, the Gentile, into the temple. And when they said he brought a Gentile into the temple, he's speaking against our law, saying Jews and Gentiles are alike. They all storm, they capture him, and he's arrested because of this. So this is such a big deal. Paul is in prison because he's saying the dividing wall has been broken. He's saying, here's the mystery, everybody. I'm revealing it, and he's in big trouble for teaching this. Because what does he say? Verse 6, here's three ways that Gentiles are equal with Jews. He says that Gentiles are fellow heirs, that they have the same inheritance we do, that Gentiles are of members of the same body. They're not separate but completely unified. With Jews in Christ, and that they are, what does he say? The third thing, they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the promises of Christ that he gives, they receive those just as well. It's hard to imagine how this would have landed on Jewish ears. Really, it would have just been so offensive that outsiders are now insiders on equal ground with equal welcome. Gentile Christians couldn't believe it either because if you feared God and wanted to know God and now you're told you have all the inheritance that the people of God have had for all of the previous centuries in Christ. N.T. Wright in his commentary on Ephesians says, what this would have felt like to the Gentiles is that we're included in this? He said it would be like if your neighbor on your block got an incredible inheritance. They inherited from their grandfather. A billion dollars, let's say. And they came over and knocked on your door and said, you know what? You're part of our family. We are cutting you into an equal share of the billion-dollar inheritance. So there's four of us. There's two of you. Six. You get a sixth of this inheritance. Equal share in the billion, uh, and you're welcome into that. You'd be thinking, wow. I'm in your family. I'm receiving those riches. That's what Paul says. In the next passage, he says, I have been announcing the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He's saying, I'm telling people who weren't a part of the family, you're in the family, and these are the riches. Eternal life, part of the purposes of God, your sins forgiven, A, 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 uh, a, a sure hope of participating with God and his people in the new heavens and new earth. It's a, it's a glorious picture here that they are receiving uh, equal. This is what the mystery of the gospel is. All people, male and female, Jew and Gentile, Scythian and barbarian, he says in another book, everybody, doesn't matter, welcome in Christ. To believe in Christ by faith, if you trust Christ, you are on equal footing with every other person. So that's God's secret disclosed to Paul and the, and the apostles and prophets. Now, verses 7 through 13 is, God, uh, is God's secret exposed. It's revealed broadly. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So the ministry, the, the mystery was initially disclosed to a few, but now uh, it's it's given to the few to be spread. This good news is to be exposed to all people. Paul is, he says in verse 7, he's made a servant of the gospel. Look at verse 7. Uh, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. The word minister means servant. That's going to be really important because I'm going to talk a little bit about, in just a second, about ministry. And ministry means service. That's what the word actually means. It, it, it's, it's not just some kind of formal title or um, uh, something like that, but it's service is what it is. So he says, I was made a, a servant of the gospel according to grace, which was given to me. Verse 8, he says, I'm the least of the saints, but this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable wealth of God's riches. So he, he defines everything he does, all that he's called to do, as a gift of God's grace. In In verse 2, up above, we saw... He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul defines his calling as stewarding God's grace Uh, or managing. To steward is to supervise something that belongs to someone else. To steward, stewardship is to carefully manage with great care, manage something usually something valuable that belongs to someone else. And so he is managing the grace of God that was given to him. This is a powerful idea, that the gospel service is a grace, which means it's a gift to us. And while we don't have Paul's unique calling, none of us are the apostle to the Gentiles, none of us are writing the scripture, Paul is unique. But there is a carryover here that's important that we too are managers or stewards of God's grace given to us. Do, do you see it that way? Do you see your calling to be of service to others? Do you see your calling to, to, uh, to gospel service, to live out the gospel in all areas of your life, to love God and to serve others as a gift of grace that's given to you, that you are to manage that grace, manage the grace given to you that has saved you, and share and spread that grace with your words, with your actions, with your deeds. This is how Paul thought of it. Everything I'm doing is what God has given to me. I haven't earned anything. I haven't created anything. I am just managing what God has done in me, what God has revealed to me, what God has given to me. I'm managing that and stewarding it, using it for God's glory and the good of others. In his commentary on Ephesians, Klein Snodgrass says this. He says, Implicitly, we think of ministry as our gift to God. I'm serving God, right? We think of ministry as our gift to God. But Paul thought of ministry as God's gift to him. When we take that seriously, it changes our perspective. Ministry or service is not drudgery to be endured, rather ministry originates in and is the expression of god's grace ministry is the free flow of grace from god through us to other people that's what ministry that's a definition of ministry it's the free flow of grace from god to us through us to other people and we believe of course that all of life is ministry so if you're serving as an usher here today then your ministry today is the grace of God to you uh, through you to other people. In other words, you're to welcome people as Christ has welcomed you. That's the grace of God to you. That's not a drudgery. That's a gift from God to you. Um, Those who are serving our children, the same thing. Those are serving in any way. But this isn't all of life. Your life as you leave here today and If you have a family, engage with your family. It's the grace of God to you. This grace that you manage to love your spouse, to train, to love, care for your children. This is all the grace of God to you and through you. And then tomorrow, uh, when you go to your job, the same thing. God has given you gifts and opportunities and relationships. It's all God's grace to you. And so what you're to do is to manage or steward that faithfully to care for other people. This is how Paul defines his ministry, and this is how we should define ours as well. All graced to serve in various ways. And so that's something to think about. How are you managing the grace of God to you through you to others? Well, Paul says more about this mystery being exposed. It's not just that he exposes it through preaching, that we do the same, but he also says that part of the secret plan or the primary aspect of the secret plan, the, the, the mystery of the gospel, as he calls it, is that we are called to be united as believers in the church. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God. So he's saying that the purpose uh, we're announcing this gospel that Jews and good news, that Jews and Gentiles are one. And what happens in Christ, what happens when we do that? is this manifold, this is the wisdom of God. Nobody saw this coming, that you didn't have to become a Jew first, that that Gentile salvation was always in view. Gentile equality was not always in view among the people of God. And so he's saying now this Gentile equality is this new, new thing, and this reflects the wisdom of God, and this manifold wisdom of God is being announced to the authorities, through the church, as the church lives this out, is what he's saying. Now, this word manifold wisdom, it's a a beautiful word. It's In the Greek, it's a a beautiful adjective that's used to describe things that have intricate, in particular, things with intricate color and design. Sometimes it's translated with the idea of like multicolored or multifaceted, like a diamond. There's multifacets that... Give multi, you can see multi-colors um, multi through the multi-facets. So it was used often to describe um, beautiful, intricate, colorful items like woven carpets. It might have been called a manifold carpet or embroidered cloth or even flowers, a bouquet of flowers or a field of flowers. The beauty of it could be used, described by the adjective manifold. And so here what he's saying is that there is now this multicolored, this richly diverse, this multifaceted wisdom that is seen in bringing different people together in his multifaceted, multicultural church. Because now there are Jews and Gentiles. That means all people, all kinds of people joined together in Christ, not based uh, just on their heritage But based on Jesus, we all find our ultimate heritage in him, this manifold beauty uh, that is the church. So we're preaching this gospel so that people are joined together, and then we live it out in demonstration through the church, which represents every nation, tongue, and tribe, as Revelation says. Sam Storms, in his commentary on Ephesians, comments on this multifaceted, manifold wisdom. He says, it is through the very existence of this new multiracial, transcultural community of believers in which Jew and Gentile are co-heirs of the promises that God makes known his wisdom. No other organization on earth, neither government nor educational institutions nor civic clubs, can accomplish this Purpose. What then becomes of the display of God's wisdom when the church remains internally divided and externally segregated? He's saying when the people of God aren't together, that 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 really the manifold wisdom is not on display, but it's lost. Our very existence as a church reveals God's wisdom. And while he creates this multi people as part of his plan to unite all things, we are responsibili- responsible to steward what he cre- has created. Now make no mistake about it. We don't create this unity. We don't create this sort of diversity. He does it. It is all his doing. But we must be faithful to walk out and to live out what he has accomplished. Now, this is so interesting because in verse 10 he says that this is going to be made known, a word of revelation this is going to be revealed to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We've already read several times about the rulers and authorities. We're going to reveal, read about them again as well. And they are the spiritual powers that we don't see. Now, they may animate and empower certain leaders or nations or systems. that they, they certainly affect our world. But it's the invisible sort of shadow rulers behind the actual rulers and authorities that we see that, uh, in, in the world. So these powers, he's saying that this is being announced to the evil spiritual powers. The 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 reason he's talking about this is a it's true, but but B because the people of Ephesus lived in a world where their culture feared malevolent spiritual powers, and he's saying Christ has defeated those powers in the cross and resurrection, and he reminds them that the, the powers realize their defeat every time historically divided people live out their their unity in this new society, the church. It's a new society it's not Jew and Gentile. It's a new person, he says. It's a a new community. It's a new family. And he says, every time you walk this out, it announces to the powers, they have been defeated. For in Christ, God is bringing all things together in Jesus. And so when we walk out, unity is in our various forms, and there are many forms of diversity, when we walk out our unity in that, we are announcing to the powers what Christ has done. On the other hand, when we foster or turn a blind eye even passively to division, we celebrate the powers that would divide us in Christ. That There really couldn't be a more important topic to consider that we want to honor the purposes of God and live out the unity that Jesus shed his blood for. This power shows us this, this, the unifying power of the gospel announced and then lived out among the people of God. I really think this whole section, sometimes I'll share. Here's a, a summary sentence or two. This is the theme of the passage. And uh, often I try to do that. Here's the, here's the overriding thought. But author Mark Roberts did such a good job. I'm just going to read you what he says about this passage. He's a commentator. He said that as the church proclaims the good news of God's salvation in Christ, and as the church lives out this good news in a unified community, all of heaven and earth will grasp the wonder and truth of God's plan for the cosmos. The cosmos. He's saying here, and this is what this passage is saying, that, as that that we proclaim what Christ has died for our sins, has risen, has been ascended to the right hand of God. We communicate the message of salvation. But we also live out that good news that we are unified, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, abled and disabled. Uh, whatever the categories might be, we live those out in unity around Christ and that announces to heaven and earth that God is bringing all things and all people who believe together in Christ. And so it's like, as the church, we are the, uh, we're the movie trailer for the coming attraction of the new heaven and the new earth. There's coming a new heaven and a new earth and God has put it all put us all together now and so we have the privilege the responsibility and the hard difficulty of walking in unity together now by his grace he empowers us but it is work This is a key way we find our place in God's mission. So we've been talking about this year's theme, finding our place in God's mission. If we want to be a part of God's mission, which is the renewal of all things, making all things new in Jesus Christ, a coming new heaven and new earth, if we want to be part of that great purpose and not just say that but live it out, it's going to involve our being built together, as we saw last week, in a temple stone upon stone. We are the temple of God, the people of God, Jew and Gentile, people different than us. We're going to be built right next together with them. And God will ensure that the person that's different than you, that gets you, uh, or not gets you like understands you, but bothers you, you're going to be built right next to that person. We used to say, you know, they they would... Uh, that person gets my goat. I don't know the derivation of that term, but that person gets my goat. But the reality is, if they can get your goat, it's because you've got a goat to get. And whatever is in you that's bothered, God's going to hook that and make sure you're right next to that person who has a different point of view on the world. They have a different political point of view. They have a different background. They have a different approach. Oh, God's going to make sure you're in that community group with that person so that you have the glory of being joined together in Christ and working things out in the gospel. Well, how do we, how do we uh, apply this? I'm going to give you a few takeaways and we'll wrap up. Here's one. If you were reading carefully, you notice I commented on most of the verses, but I skipped one, the last one. And that's, this is what I think this passage calls us to do. It's a call to persevere in unity. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to lose heart when it looks like the mission of God has stalled. The apostle to the Gentiles, the one who initially got the mystery and is now sharing the mystery, is in jail. He can't travel. He can't plant churches. He can't lecture and teach and evangelize and do all that he does as an apostle. So it looks like the mission has stalled. If you're a Gentile, you're thinking, man, that was our guy. That was our guy. He represented us. He was announcing. He was proof that we're included here. And now he's marginalized. How would you feel if you were a Gentile and your guy... Your representative is no longer on the field of play, but is now separated. It'd be challenging. And he's saying, do not lose heart. My, My imprisonment is ultimately for your glory. It's ultimately for the glory of God. God is using this for me to announce the gospel in a different way to a different people. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that this whole thing he's talking about, that in Christ we are... Vertically reconciled with God, but we are also horizontally reconciled with His people. This whole thing, which is chapter two, verse eleven through chapter three, thirteen, it's one big long section about our unity. Uh, this call for unity and this walking out of unity. Uh, if you are burdened by that, if you care about that, if you want to are proactively praying for that and acting. For that, you will battle discouragement. It's no sense to say, don't lose heart, because we've got a long way to go. It's easy for us to say and think, well, we live in polarized times, and we do, and we live in divided times, and the most divided in my lifetime that I can recall in many ways. Uh, but it's always been this way. The Jew and Gentile thing is all over the New Testament, divided, divided, divided. We live in a crazy time, friends. Now, I'm going to, I'm not taking my mic off there, I'm adjusting. As the country preacher said, I'm fixing to stop preaching and start meddling in the next couple minutes here. We live in a crazy time. I have made an application, and I don't think it's the only application, I think there's many, but I have made what I believe is a fair application in the last two weeks, that the Jew and Gentile division we don't have but it does relate something to racial division, which we can relate to, and other divisions, as there would be other divisions as well. And we live in a crazy time where you hear some Christians speak about racial issues, and it sounds like it is straight up the idol- the well, idolatry, that's a, that's a Freudian slip. It is the ideology of the secular left. Some people speak about racial issues in the church today, and it sounds like the secular left with very little gospel, very little Bible. And it is a danger today that, out of good motives, oftentimes, preachers uh, preach uh, progressive left ideology as biblical theology. That is a danger and a ditch that we want to avoid. I also want to bring your attention to there is a ditch on the other side. And it is a ditch that is a danger, more frequently a danger, in the tribe we happen to run in, which would be um, conservative, not politics, but conservative Bible, conservative theology. We're conservative biblically and conservative theologically. And in our tribe, there is a reactionary approach to Christians who embrace the secular left, a reactionary approach where you can't even mention racial reconciliation you can't mention racial harmony. You can't even use a word like diversity without someone accusing you of woke theology that displaces the gospel. And that is a danger on the other side. This sort of anti-wokeness, this sort of, sort of, uh, sort of far-right mentality that minimizes the gospel as well. Ironically, that ideology minimizes the gospel because they don't really want to walk out this this part of the gospel. They're great with the vertical part of the gospel, but how do we walk this out together? They don't give balanced emphasis towards the reconciliation that is needed among God's people. And it is massive in the New Testament. The horizontal dimension of this is massive in the New Testament, and it takes work. Whenever I bring up race, inevitably somebody will say, well, the fact you're talking about race is dividing us. We are just one in Christ. And the Bible here says we are just one in Christ. I agree with that. But the fact that God's made us one doesn't mean that there's no work to do. How would it work out in your marriage uh, to just say, we're one flesh, so we don't have any problems? There's never a sin. There's never a disagreement. How about if your spouse brought up to you, hey, I got a problem with something. You said, one flesh. One flesh, baby. Don't be giving me that. We, are one, we, are un- we have been unified in Jesus. You would say, that's crazy. If I were to say to you, "Your vertical relationship. You are righteous in Christ. Do you ever have a sin? you ever have a problem that you need to work out because you aren't right with God in your functional actions? Of course. Well, the same is going to happen horizontally. And there are times we need to talk about that and grow and learn and work things out together in all kinds of areas. And I understand that words like diversity, which I've used, uh, I understand those are buzzwords that carry some kind of baggage in our culture, but I'm not going to give that word up to the secular left. It's a good word. The word manifold, if you look up a synonym for manifold wisdom, you look up a synonym for manifold, it will be diverse. The body of Christ is diverse. You say Jew and Gentile, that means diverse. That means one people who are multicolored, multicultural, glorious, and beautiful. God's design. So I don't want to have woke theology. I don't want to have anti-woke theology. I want to have the gospel. Which says that by the death and resurrection of Christ, we are made one in him. And we are one. We are one. However, there are times when we aren't one and don't see eye to eye. And we need to work that through with listening and forgiveness and speaking the truth and love to one another for the glory of God. That's the gospel. There's the secular left. There's the far right. And there's the third way, which is the gospel. And that's what we want to embrace. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, he says. God is at work. Not all Christians have bowed the knee to the divisive elements of our culture. Divisive elements. Politics, for instance, divisive traditions, D- divisive ethnic superiority, divisive pride. Here's a big one, divisive fear. So much of any discussion about diversity or race or any of this, there's so much fear that drives every position. Paul is not that way. Paul saying this is the mystery of God and it is glorious that God has brought us together. That is the good news. And every Sunday, when we gather to worship the Lord as people, young and old, as I'm mentioning, different different socioeconomic categories, different races, every Sunday we gather, we do so to glorify Christ and to protest against the powers, letting them know that they are defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us one. We sing with one voice to the Savior. Paul is in prison because he's announced the mystery uh, that we are one and it wasn't popular in his day and it gets sliced up all kinds of ways in our day. But may we look to the scripture and to the gospel and put our hopes here. Two really quick points because i got to be done. Two other takeaways from this is one, the church is central to God's plan. That is so obvious here. We live in a day where the church is increasingly marginalized and he's saying The mystery is that we're the people of God together. So you you don't really get the full experience of the gospel if you're separated from the people of God. You can be reconciled to God, but if you're not reconciled to his people, if you're not part of them, you aren't experiencing God's grace. You aren't walking out the multicolored wisdom of God, living with your fellow heirs and your fellow members you are a solitary Christian is a false advertisement to the mystery which has been revealed in Christ because you're not walking it out. You're not walking it out. I love how Kent Hughes talks about this. Should, do we need to be joined with the church, with the people of God? Not this church, but wherever, a church. Do we need to be joined? He's saying, he said this. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also don't have to go home to be married. However, if you do not frequent your home, your relationship will be in jeopardy. (laughs) Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. The gospel is Christ and the church. And we could say from this passage, it's Christ and the church, all people united in Christ, Jew and Gentile. and you, You pick your division or your distinction. They're all broken down and united in Christ. Finally, We need to realize, and this was the sermon title, that God's mission has a church. Now, I'm not trying to be cutesy with this idea, which I've seen from a number of other people, quote, you know, use this language. Certainly not original with me. But better than the idea that God's church has a mission in the world is the idea that God's mission in the world has a church. God is redeeming what was ruined in the fall. He's bringing order to chaos. He's bringing light to the darkness. He's bringing all things together in Christ, and we are part of that. That is the great purpose, and he's doing that. The vehicle that he's doing that through is the church. The vehicle that he is using to display his wisdom, to press forward his eternal purpose in Christ, is the church where the greatest social barriers have been destroyed and we are one people. God loves the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. And you can't be a part of his great purpose and mission to make all things new and to bring all things in subjection and to unify all things in Christ if you aren't a part of the vehicle that he is accomplishing that mission with, the church. God's mission, God's purpose has a church. And we are not a club, we are not a collection of individuals, we are a unified people that embody the very purposes of God. And we carry His mission. He has a mission and He's given us to carry it to restore what was lost in the fall. The mystery has been revealed. Jesus is Lord and His people are all who would believe in Him, Jew and Gentile alike. The mission is alive and well so friends do not lose heart as Paul says. Rather by the grace of God, let's throw ourselves into his purpose and into his mission and let's watch him work. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you today that we live in a divided world and and uh, And you've called us to be different. And, Lord, I don't know how all that works out. Lord, I'm concerned with my own heart in that matter. I'm concerned with the church in the matter of walking as one in unity. But I I know this is your purpose. I know Jesus died and rose to accomplish it. I know that your grace is with us. I know that you've called us to be a part of your great mission. And, Lord, we confess sometimes we look around and it looks like we're losing ground. It doesn't look like you are building a church that the gates of hell can't stand against. It it looks like the gates of hell are winning at times in our culture, in the world. Even in our own hearts at times it looks that way. But Lord, we take your word at face value and we believe that it's true. And we humble ourselves today before you and we say, have your way in us and through us. Your grace to us, your grace in us, your grace for us, and your grace through us. And lastly, I pray for our church, Lord. Thank you that you have sustained us through sharply differing ideas in the last year and a half. You've you've sustained us. Lord, we have no business being here, but you have sustained us. so we thank you for that. We pray that you'd continue to do that. Give us hearts for one another and ultimately hearts for your glory to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.